Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening. Postpartum body odor. It is a totally natural phenomenon because your body chemistry changes after giving birth. And so sometimes that means that what worked before is no longer effective. But I am excited to say that now there is a solution for that stubborn odor. The Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is a completely natural deodorant made by a postpartum mom who went through it herself. And it works by eliminating and preventing bacterial body odor without covering up your skin's comforting smell to your baby while giving you 12 hours of odor control. And let me tell you, it actually works. Here at the house, we've all been trying it and loving it. Now, before you think, ew, you're sharing a deodorant with your husband and daughter, let me explain that this full-body deodorant comes in a convenient pump applicator that lets you apply it anywhere on your body with no bacteria traveling on the deodorant, so no ew involved. We also love that the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant has a delightful natural scent of USDA certified organic extracts that smell like a pink sugar cookie with lemon frosting. I thought this would be a little strange, but it's actually amazing. Also, the Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant is free from artificial fragrances and any kind of senoestrogens or herbs that can interfere with breastfeeding. Find your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant at postpartumdeodorant.com. That's postpartumdeodorant.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off through the month of May. Get your Sugar Sugar Postpartum Deodorant now at postpartumdeodorant.com and start smelling more like yourself again. Pregnancy and postpartum are some of the most nutritionally demanding times of your life, which makes sense because you're basically acting as your baby's pantry while pregnant or nursing. That's why the quality of your prenatal supplements is so vitally important. Hands down, the one I recommend is needed. So I'm thrilled to say that if you use the code BIRTHFUL at thisisneeded.com, you can get 20% off your first month of needed products. Needed is the number one nutrition brand recommended and used by me and over 4,000 practitioners from nutritionists to midwives, functional medicine doctors, and OBGYNs. Needed is for anyone trying to conceive, pregnant, postpartum, and really, this is goodness you can use even before and beyond the perinatal years. Along with prenatals, Needed offers premium supplements for every stage, from egg quality support to a lactation support plan, a stress and sleep support plan, and a gut health plan. In fact, I've had clients rave about Needed's pre and probiotic formula, saying how much better it made them feel compared to their usual probiotics. And to me, Needed's hydration support packets, which only have ingredients you can pronounce, are a must in any doula or hospital bag. Also, Needed's prenatal multi is available in capsules and easy-to-take vanilla powder for those with nausea or pill fatigue. 
head over to thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use the code BIRTHFUL for 20% off your first month of Needed products. Welcome to the Birthful Podcast. I'm Adriana Lozada, and today's birth stories are with Krista Thompson. Krista shares her progression from a first prodromal labor that ended with her baby being taken to the NICU to a precipitous second hospital birth with fetal ejection reflex and finally an unassisted-like home birth experience. She also gives us a glimpse into her struggles with codependency and why it was so important for her to take the reins of this last pregnancy. Stay tuned. The Birthful Podcast, talking to maternity pros and new parents to inform your intuition. Hello, mighty parents and parents-to-be. Thank you, as always, for all the love you give the show. If what you hear is helpful, do make sure you subscribe. It is free, and that way you won't miss a thing. All right, so Krista Thompson is here today to share about her three births, but more specifically about her third birth, which was, as she wrote to me, intentional in every detail, every sound and every person in attendance. And that was quite different from what she experienced with her first. Part of the motivation to be so intentional was to grab the reins of the last this her her most recent pregnancy and truly give it the focus she felt it deserved since at the same time Krista was having some real struggles with her husband in fact she filed for divorce while three months pregnant so we go a little bit into where that was coming from and what led her to become a really dig deep into what codependency means and now she's and feels she's in recovery from that so I do appreciate that her biggest takeaway from all this was the realization that she didn't need to do it all and find out what that meant for her. Let's get to it. Krista, welcome. It is so nice to have you here on the podcast today. Good morning. It's so great to have you too. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself before we get into your story. Sure. Um, my name's Krista Thompson. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Um, this is actually my hometown where I grew up, although I spent some time uh, living in Florida and New York City as well. Um, I came back to Pittsburgh in 2014, and I've been here ever since. have started my little family here, um, grown to, I guess, a little bit bigger than a little family these days. I have three children. Um, I'm a member of the Three Under Three Club. Um, no twins in there. I actually just had three babies in three years. Um, I am a lawyer by profession. Um, I work for a corporation here in um, the greater Pittsburgh area. I am a martial artist. I love um, practicing Tung Sudo and Taekwondo, which I've been doing since I was a child. I am a fanatic about music and musical theater. Um, and uh, most importantly is is I'm a mom. I'm really into conscious parenting and um before I uh, became a parent, of course, I was going through the journey towards my births, and I'm excited to share them about with you today. Yeah, and I'd like to, I know you wanted to focus on that third birth, which was, as you described uh, when you wrote to me, amazing and like the perfect dream birth, which I'm so excited to hear about. But before we get into that, how were the first two? Sure. You know, I don't really know what it was, um, 
in my life that that made me um, you know predetermined to ultimately have a home birth. But as I go back and look at my three birth stories, they were a progression towards home birth. Um, so I, I had all three. My first birth was um, a, your traditional, if you will, hospital birth. Um, I was trying to have a, a natural birth, but I had very um, long prodromal labor for for weeks leading up to my birth. And by the time I actually got to my, the uh, birth of my son, I, I opted for the epidural. And of course, he was born two hours later. Um, I uh, had a, a very um, a doula with me for my first birth, who um, was the the greatest blessing to me, really helped me to become more informed in my, um, you know, as I progressed through pregnancy and to determine, what, you know, exactly what it was that ideally I would have in my birth if, if things went according to plan. Um and it was really, um, it, it wasn't in any way a traumatic experience with the exception of by the time my son was born, because I had had a very long labor uh, experience, um, I had hit the markers in the hospital uh, checklist, if you will, for um, potentially having choreo, which of course is an infection that can af- affect mom and be passed to baby. And so unfortunately, because of that, um, they took my son right away from me. I, I really held him for um, a matter of seconds before they took him to the NICU and very unnecessarily flooded his body with a bunch of antibiotics and, and tests for a few days, um, which made me realize that, hmm, you know, this maybe doesn't, isn't how it has to be. <laughs> you know, maybe, maybe this next time I need to, to do something different. So I had my, my son in the, the normal hospital um, NICU experience if, if to the extent that that's normal. And by the time I left there, I said, it's going to be different next time. It's going to be different. Mm. And let's get, there was a lot of things in there that prompted questions in my mind. So first of all, I don't think Oh, I don't think we've talked about prodromal labor in a while on the show, and I want to clarify what that is for people that may not be familiar with the world with the word. And so, how would you define it? Sure. Well, prodromal labor is unlike Braxton Hicks contractions. It's labor that feels very real and, to a certain extent, is real, but it's not productive labor. Um, it's usually due to a malpositioned baby um, or. Um, you know, some other factor. In my case, they thought, you know, I had some scar tissue present and that they thought that, you know, my body was trying to kind of work to start dilating, but it just wasn't able to do it. So I was having for several weeks in the evening, maybe for three or four hours at a time, contractions. And I kept thinking, wow, okay, going into, I'm going into labor. This is really exciting. However, my body wasn't actually going into labor. And you said they'd hit in the evenings, which is very common. Was that making you super tired and and not being able to get good sleep? Or how was it affecting you other than the, you know, obviously the mind game of, is this it? No, it's not. It's is it. No, it's not. (laughs) A mind game it is, isn't it? Um, Yes, it was. And I wasn't as educated as I am now. So you know, anytime your body is showing signs that it's, you think you're going into labor, you're, you're trying to encourage it along. And, um, you know, I hadn't listened to your podcast yet, Adriana, so I didn't really know you try to ignore it and try to distract yourself and do something else, um, you know, and let your body go naturally in the process. So I was like, all right, how can I get this moving along? I'm outside walking, I'm doing hills. And eventually, after a few days of this, you're like, hey, 
clearly I'm not in labor. What's going on? And so were you able at some point to get into that mindset of, okay, I'm just going to ignore this thing. Here we go again. You know, I'd really love to tell you the answer is yes, but it wasn't. (laughs) I just (laughs) continued every day. And I I talked, I hadn't known what prodromal labor was. My doula was informing me and advising me. Um, And, you know, she was giving me the ignored until you can't advice. I just wasn't really able to take that advice very well. <laughs> that last month of pregnancy always feels like a hundred years anyway. And for me in that, in that first um, labor experience, I was just, okay, let's, let's keep going. What can I do to, to keep this and, or to turn it into real labor, you know, to kind of make that transition from this prodromal feeling where my body's going through the motions, but nothing's really happening to, um, to flip it to that actual early or active labor part. And uh, so, no, I just continued to, you know, fight my body, not listen to my doula, not listen to the advice of my wonderful midwives and just kept trying to go. And of course, several weeks passed and, you know, I was one tired mama and I wasn't even a mama yet. Yeah. And it can be really hard. I mean, if especially because you want to take control, you want to do the things and to just... Uh, lay back sit sit back and not do much about it can feel frustrating if you're used to moving forward and taking charge that's exactly right and that you you hit it right on the head that's my personality i am an extreme type a personality i'm all about fixing things i'm a great person to have in an emergency like all right i know exactly what to do Um, but I was not the best person to be, you know, going through labor in a, a process that is inherently out of your control. Um, I had not as, as informed as I was and as educated as I made myself, I wasn't quite prepared for that experience as, as often happens to moms. And so it was a really good, um, learning experience. Of course, I was able to put that to use in my future, um, labors, but, uh, I, I was not as woke as I am now on prodromal labor. Yeah. And the thing is, it requires birth requires different skills than what we usually like the ones that we really apply and and exalt during life. Right. Like that, that being organized and taking charge and and being on time and certainty <laughs> and role orientations and, you know, uh, being effective. And yeah, yes, that, exactly. like, Those are not the skills for birth, unfortunately. It's hard to switch it up. So, oh, another thing I wanted to ask you, you mentioned that your baby hit hit the markers for choreo, and um, I can't remember the full name of the, we always call it choreo as, it's choreo. Choreo amnio something, choreo amnio. And it's not amniocentesis, because that's a different thing. Yeah. So what were the markers or what? So, so I, I believe um, in my best recollection, there were three markers. And if you had two of the three, then, you know, they were going to, to treat for choreo. Um, and I'll explain why this was so frustrating to me. This was to me just, you know, having a, a bland medicalized, you know, not specific to the person test that had nothing to do with me. It just was, you know, general symptoms. So um, they they called a, a fever one of the the markers. Now it's important, you know, to note a, f- a fever really would be a, a higher temperature, you know, not an elevated temperature. I mean, sometimes my my temperature goes up a degree when I'm going up a flight of stairs. <laughs> 
Um, and so the, I had hit the temperature requirement, which, which was, I believe, precisely 100 degrees um, was what they considered a fever for purposes of the choreo markers. Um, and my temperature had reached 100 degrees. Um, the second thing they looked for was a rapid heartbeat. I'm not exactly sure what they considered rapid. I don't remember that specifically, but um, that was one of them. And the third one was an elevated blood pressure. I have very low blood pressure generally, and most women, of course, in labor, their blood pressure goes up as they're experiencing some amount of, um, you know, intensity or, or pain, depending on, on the person. And so the two that I had established, uh, according to the hospital test, was a fever as well as an elevated blood pressure. And my elevated blood pressure was, I think, 120 over uh, 75, <laughs> which is some for some people a normal blood pressure. Um, so those were the two signs that they determined that it was likely that I had choreo and therefore potential that I passed that to my baby and caused his NICU treatment. Yeah. And you did say he's had an epidural, and but it didn't seem like you had it for long. Sometimes the epidural can also increase temperature, um, but then they have to assume it's a it's an infection and not a, a something right. caused by the epidural. So just in case, right? Of right. Being- now, the part that was really frustrating to me, of course, was I was very tired by the time I had my baby, as happens to many women who have longer labors. Um, so um, I hit those markers. They told me that your baby is going to be taken to the NICU. Um, you know, my ba- my child was born just a few minutes later, you know, under the threat of if you don't have this baby in the next few minutes, we're going to have to have a C-section. despite, you know, no fetal distress. And immediately after my son was born, my blood pressure returned to normal for me and my temperature returned to somewhere in the, you know, under the 100 degree mark, which typically would mean that that potential, you know, mom does not have the sign of of choreo. They do not have the, the signs of infection. But because I had hit them during the labor, it still required treatment um, according to their policy. Mm hmm. Yeah, and that I can, and, you know, obviously a very frustrating way to kind of not hang out with your baby and not meet your baby, and 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 all because of risk assessments and and Correct. protocols. It seems from what you're telling me, um, so I can understand how frustrating that is, especially after working so hard for weeks. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it was not exactly the the entrance that that I had, you know, expected. I just, you know, wanted to be able to hold my baby and it was then for for nearly 4 hours I was separated from my child who I had given very specific instruction, you know, I only wanted to breastfeed, so you know, please don't give him any sugar water or or formula. And so I kept thinking, "Oh, my child is starving." And, you know, I don't even know what floor he's on. Um and so it's a little bit frustrating just at the beginning. However, I mean, many parents go through NICU experiences that are much more um, significant and serious. And, and that was fortunate for, for me that it wasn't. But it was just an unnecessary separation, unnecessary treatment. Um, and, you know, really birthed the mama bear in me because, you know, here I am dragging my butt down a few floors to go find my son and trying to get him out of there because, of course, at this time I recognized it was completely unnecessary, um, you know, that that he was treated. And and that's where I began my advocacy for, you know, for myself and my son. And I, and I knew I was going to have a different experience in the future. Mm. So let's take a quick break. And when we come back, let's talk about that different experience. We'll be right back. 
And we are back with Krista Thompson talking about her birth experiences. You've got three under three. So that was the first one. Um, yeah. How was the, the second one and what did you do differently to prepare? So a few things that I had done differently after, you know, learning about the prodromal labor experience of the first was I began treatment throughout my pregnancy with a Webster certified chiropractor. That was the first thing that I did to really help my baby be in a better position, um, as well as to have optimal alignment of my spine, pelvis, uh, you know, and everything so that, you know, birth could be more efficient. Mm-hmm. And it, otherwise, you did you switch anything about having a birth at a hospital or to change providers or? So I stayed with my same providers, which was, um, you know, hospital-based midwives. However, they changed hospitals um, since the time that I, I was pregnant prior. Um, and this hospital was 70 minutes from my house. Now, I live in the Pittsburgh area, as I mentioned, and there are so many hospitals in the Pittsburgh area. So I really could have went to a different hospital, but I felt really confident with the midwives that I had chosen. Um, I felt pretty confident with the new hospital that they moved to, which you know seemed to be a more mother-friendly, baby-friendly hospital um, and maybe wasn't as strict in their policies. And really my plan was to just not go to the hospital. Everybody says that, right? I wish that I had listened to it sooner. It's just hard when you're that that first time mom, you feel like you need to, to go to the hospital when you go into labor. So this time my plan was, listen, I'm 70 minutes away. I'm going to stay out of that hospital as long as I can. And um, I really prepared myself by um, listening to birth stories, reading birth stories, hundreds of birth stories I read in my second pregnancy so that I became more comfortable with variations of normal. Um, I think in my mind, as I was prepared for the first time around Adriana, that I really thought, okay, here, here is how my birth is going to happen. And, you know, I had this, this mindset, but I wasn't prepared for the prodromal aspect of it. So I wanted to be prepared for all of the different things that could happen um, to the extent that I could control them so that I felt comfortable and confident about my choice to labor at home as long as possible. And, and at least be familiar with some of them, like the possibilities. That's exactly right. Yeah, because you can't control everything. You can't like I'm constantly still learning from <laughs> from all the births that I go to, which is what makes it so interesting. And, and you know, there's lots of things that are so fulfilling about it. What But one of us like, oh, this is new. Oh, this, like that variation of normal keeps expanding. Um, yes. yes, because birth is as unique as we are as individuals. But that seems like a fantastic preparation, um, and part of why I do these birth stories for the for the podcast is be- so that people know how, huh? That's not so strange, right? That yes, that yeah, yeah. That's, that's exactly it. And you know, I always I mentioned earlier that I love you know musical theater, live theater. It's the same reason that I love birth. Like anything could happen. You really only get one chance to go through it and it it could be different every time. And I think that's the beauty of it. So I was trying to become more familiar with, you know, all of the different variations and and things, uh, you know, that could happen that that might make my birth different as I, you know, thought it might be, but still normal. Yeah. I forgot to ask you how long uh, for the first one, what, how far along were you when, when labor actually kicked in? So, we were able to pinpoint like real labor starting around 39 weeks and three days. And my son was born at 39 weeks, six days. Okay. So it was still three days of a process. 
Correct. I had a very long 80-hour <laughs> labor experience, of which most of it was at the hospital. Okay. And at what point had your water broken? My water did not break until after I had the epidural placed. So uh, that was just a few hours before my son was born. Okay. Yeah, I'm just, you know. That's why they allowed me to continue to labor even though I was at a hospital and typically you have some sort of some sort of clock starts and there's some t- time, but because my water hadn't broken, um, you know, they allowed me to continue to, to try to make it through. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then the second one, when did it start? So my second labor began around eight in the evening is when I, I believe I went into early labor. It was uh, just two days earlier um, for my second birth. Um, well, I should say my son, my daughter was born two days earlier, but labor was a few days before that. So I, I believe it was um, like 39 weeks, maybe the same day I went into labor, 39 weeks, three days. And my daughter was born at 39 weeks, four days. So I had a much shorter labor experience this time around. Mm-hmm. So It's amazing how it's just been a little bit of time, but you know, you start to forget some of these details already. <laughs> well, and then you have another one after this. So that those are probably fresher in your mind. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Those details. Um, So early labor around 8 p.m. You were 39 weeks in a bit. Yes. And I I was just I was laying in bed with my husband. We were um, watching, you know, some comedy on TV. I really enjoy at the end of my um, pregnancies watching comedy. It's it's a consistent theme of mine. Maybe just, you know, having a reason to laugh when you're otherwise uncomfortable and not sleeping well is is something that keeps my spirits um, going. So I remember some surges uh, beginning and I didn't tell my husband because I'm a labor denier. (laughs) After after my first uh, bout with prodromal labor, I just you know, I said, okay, well, this can't be labor. I'm just going to try to sleep or rest. And that's what I did for a few hours. I remember waking up probably in the, you know, 12 o'clock hour and I was still feeling these rushes and I got excited. Um, I said, oh, okay, I think this is actually it this time. Um, so I went downstairs and I had a, um, a nice meal of full of carbohydrates just to give myself some energy. Um, I contacted my doula, same doula I had the first time around, and I decided to get in my big jetted tub just to, you know, in, enjoy, relax uh, through labor a little bit. And I think it might have been just a few hours later, two or three in the morning, um, I uh, I woke up my husband. I said, hey, we're going to have a baby today. <laughs> and... Um, I contacted my mom. She came out to spend, you know, spend the time with my son. I labored in the the tub for a few more hours. And I think maybe just a little before 7 a.m., I recall saying to my husband, hey, uh, if we don't leave right now, I don't I don't think we're going to make it. (laughs) I knew we had a long drive ahead of us. Um, And while I was in communication with my doula, she was actually at you know, with doulas, there's often overlap between their clients. And she was at a 42 week to the day induction at another local hospital. And so we were just communicating over the phone and she wasn't present with me at my house. Um, and I said, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna head to the hospital now. I don't feel like I can make it much longer without without going. I don't want to deal with a, a car ride too, too late in labor. Yeah. And you had 70 minute drive to get there. That's exactly right. And so the the drive was quite comical. I um, we got in the car and I re- I made a quick ten second cell phone video. Hey, we're going to have a baby today, I think. Um, and about five minutes later, I'm like, oh my gosh, you know the car tractions that 
<laughs> that become more intense when you're um, when you're in the middle of a drive. And and I had pretty significant, um, you know, in, intense contractions while I w- while I was making that drive. And I'm sure uh, worrying my husband. <laughs> Because I I was in the back seat, you know, kind of on all fours and on the highway. It's not exactly the safest place to to be, but you got to do what you got to do. And um, we got to the hospital around eight thirty a.m. and I was still in my head saying like, let's just go and and see how far along I am. I was terrified they were going to say something like you're two centimeters or three centimeters, um, just because of my previous labor experience. And um, we arrived to the hospital. Um, pulled up to the, you know, the valet area. And I remember someone greeting me saying, you know, would you like to sit in, you know, would, would you like a wheelchair? And I was like, definitely don't want to sit right now. <laughs> just, just let me make my way up to labor and delivery. And, um, not 30 minutes later, my daughter was born. <laughs> wow. Mm-hmm. Um, so when you got up there, like, did they check you or was it very evident that she was on her way and there was just nothing but getting it was evident it was evident to them it was not evident to me <laughs> i'm i'm still thinking you know i had lots of time in fact i i had the only room that had a, a tub in, in the in the hospital and i was thinking that i still had hours to go so i insisted that they fill the tub and i remember my midwife saying krista you're not gonna make it you don't have time to even walk to the tub let alone to get in and labor in the tub and I said, fill the tub. <laughs> and I, I remember her saying, okay, guys, fill the tub just to, you know, appease me. But uh, yet there was no chance that I was going to make it over there. Um, they did check me. I was just leaning over the, on the wall, actually, at the time, near, near a couch in the room. And um, she said, you know, do you want me to check you? And I said, yep, but can you do it right here? <laughs> I'm not getting on that bed. Um, and she did, she checked me and she said that, you know, I was nearly fully dilated, just a, a little bit to go. Um, and, uh, I decided to kind of make my way over. She said, your bag of waters is bulging. Uh, I bet if we break this bag of waters, your baby will be here in just a few moments. And I said, okay, but I'm going to go get in the tub, right? Yeah, okay, Krista, you can go get in the tub. That sounds um, like labor land talking. <laughs> It definitely was. I was just so focused on getting in that tub. And I had a TENS unit um, that I was using. And I was so happy that the hospital allowed me to continue to use use it because when I had called in advance, they said they actually never had anyone labor with a TENS unit before. So they weren't sure, you know, what, how they were going to respond to me wanting to use a TENS unit through my, my labor. Um, and I actually um, just truly 10 minutes after we got up to the room, um, you know, kind of made my way onto the back of the bed and I was on all fours leaning over the back of the bed and they broke my waters at, I believe it was 9.15 a.m. and my daughter was born at 9.17. Oof. Uh, how were those two minutes? <laughs> I will be honest with you, um, and this is true with her personality. She's my easiest baby and she was my easiest labor. It was complete fetal ejection reflex. I did not push her out whatsoever. Um, it was not extraordinarily intense, um, at least compared to my other experiences. It was it was the easiest of my my births. Um, I, my body really knew what it was doing. I trusted my body. Also, I think with the prodromal aspects of my first labor. I really started to doubt, like, was there something wrong with my body that it couldn't labor correctly, that I was having these, you know, false contractions, if you will, that were unproductive. 
And my body really took over and I believed in my body's power to do what it had to do. And it didn't disappoint me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it seems like things are moving right along. And in that mindset of whether you were consciously or unconsciously ignoring it, you know, because denial can be a way of ignoring. <laughs> <laughs> Saying, I'm going to get into this tub. Way. Yeah, right? I'm going to get in the tub. You're focused on the tub. That thinking brain is is busy on one thing and your body's like, okay, you do that. We'll just have a baby over here. It's all good. <laughs> That's exactly right. And she, uh, yeah, she was born. I pulled her out. Um and, you know, she had a very short uh, umbilical cord, but I was still able to kind of hold her and turn myself around. And my um, my expressions I, in those photos um, right after my, my second birth are just priceless because you could see on my face like registering, oh, my gosh, that actually just happened. You know, it's such a different experience than the first time. Yeah. Um, I do recall, Adriana, just some funny things. I really... Um, Maybe you relate to this, but it's really hard for me when I hear women talk about things like, oh, the hospital didn't allow me this or, you know, they let me do this. Um, And I went into that hospital, you know, so late in labor that they really didn't have a lot of choices. Like I remember them coming and saying they were going to put an IV in my arm. And I said, you absolutely are not. (laughs) Don't touch me. I'm laboring here. I remember them bringing me consent forms to sign. And I said, definitely not going to sign consent forms. I am in the middle of having a baby. And I thought I was hours away still at that point. I didn't realize I was minutes away. But just the craziness, you know, in hindsight of, you know, asking someone who's minutes away from pushing on the baby to sign paperwork or to, you know, put an IV in her arm, which could could be necessary. I understand the reason, you know, they want a Heplock or put an IV in, in your arm. But I really just said, no, I was, I was not letting them do that. And they didn't really have a choice but to go with what I was allowing. It was, you know, while the hospital sets policy and everything, I very firmly said no to just about everything they asked me. Um, you were very clear on that, what you were, what your wishes were at that point in terms of just let me labor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just what I'm doing. And is an, an, another reason why I'm such an advocate and proponent and, and really focus on how to figure out how people can support their physiology. Because if you support physiology, and of course, there's variations, right? But if you do your best to support physiology, and let and get out of the way so your body does what it needs to do, it's then there's less need for interventions. There's less need for any of that because they just have to follow your lead. Like you're going, you're a train, it's taken off. (laughs) You can either come along or, you know, goodbye. That's, that's exactly right. And I recall like several of the nurses, um, you know, saying to me after that it was just really inspiring for them to see me like so clearly know you know, what I needed in my labor space at that time. Mm. And it was just to let me go. You know, I didn't want her to check me on the bed in a normal traditional feet up position. I was comfortable leaning over the couch by the wall. And that's where, you know, my midwife, thankfully, was flexible enough to check me in that position. Um, and uh, the the nurses, I'm not sure exactly, you know, their experience with physiological birth, but it you know, they, they repeatedly said to me, which is very nice to see me know what my body needed at that time. Mm-hmm. And it, 
With this whole conversation you mentioned of people saying they didn't let me this, they didn't let me that, if you're more in an early thinking brain kind of space, then those conversations have can be had. But That's right. I, you know, what is a provider going to do if you're like, I'm not getting on the bed? You, you can check <laughs> me here or like she could be flexible or not check you, basically. Like it was very clear, it seems, that you were not going to move from there. So... The you know, other than grabbing you and forcing you to in a bed, which is clearly a violation of human rights and obstetric violence and all of that, like she was not going to go there. But it happens, right? It happens to people. We I've heard stories, but yeah, unless they did that, they had to go with what my body was doing, and. There was just a difference for me in that trust that I had in my body the second time around to know everything was fine. You know, there I could have declined the cervical exam altogether. I mostly just needed to know that I wasn't two centimeters dilated at that point. I needed <laughs> and, you know, it it was very empowering for me to to know that everything was okay. My body was doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing. Mm, so good. Let's take another break. When we come back, um, let's jump into that third one. We'll be right back. Diaper rash. It can be a truly uncomfortable experience for a baby. And so I find that one of the biggest conundrums when diapering is figuring out what diaper cream to use. So many options are thick and goopy, making them hard to apply and hard to wipe off. But I can personally say that this is not the case for Dr. Mom Butt Balm. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is a pediatrician-approved skin protectant that is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, designed as a breathable formula to help maintain an optimal skin barrier while allowing the healing to occur. This butt balm was developed by a mom who is also a doctor, hence the name Dr. Mom Butt Balm, when she couldn't find any traditional products that worked for her baby's persistent diaper rash and she wasn't about to settle. So she created Dr. Mom Butt Balm to go on smooth and be easy to remove while also being gentle on your baby's delicate skin. With Dr. Mom Butt Balm, you can say goodbye to excessive wiping to clean your little one's already chafed skin. Dr. Mom Butt Balm is so soft and goes on so smooth that you'll only need a small amount instead of having to layer on a thick goop. Plus, it has a lovely minty scent. Learn more about Dr. Mom Butt Balm at drmombuttbalm.com. That's drmombuttbalm.com. Or look for it at Amazon.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Acorns. And sometimes I find that investing gets put off because it doesn't seem urgent or because with our busy lives, we may not have the time to research and manage said investments. Which is why I so appreciate that Acorns makes it easy to start automatically saving and investing for your future and that you don't need a lot of money or expertise to invest with Acorns. In fact, you can get started with just your spare change. So for example, I take advantage of Acorns Roundup feature where they round up the purchase amounts I make in my linked account to the nearest dollar and then they automatically transfer that to my invest account portfolio. Also, Acorns can recommend an expert-built portfolio that fits you and your money goals, then automatically invests your money for you. For me, that's easy-peasy investing. 
Head to acorns.com slash birthful or download the Acorns app to start saving and investing for your future today. Client testimonial may not be representative of all clients. Tier 1 compensation provided. Compensation provides an incentive to positively promote Acorns. View important disclosures at acorns.com slash birthful. Investing involves risk, including the loss of principal. Please consider your objectives, risk tolerance, and Acorns fees before investing. Acorns Advisors LLC Acorns is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are provided to clients of Acorns by Acorn Securities LLC. Member FINRA SIPC. For more information, visit acorns.com. And we are back talking with Krista Thompson about her births. And you just had a beautiful, you described a gorgeous, beautiful hospital birth, but very physiological and, and you know, as close with minimal interventions. Um, so you pulled your baby out, put her on your chest. Was there any separation? How did breastfeeding go? How was, clearly it was very different from the first meeting of your, of your first baby. So what, did anything specifically stand out to you then? Um, I was on a mission to get out of the hospital, like I was in a mission to stay out of the hospital as long as possible. So my focus after, of course, doting on my my new daughter, um, you know, I, I believe it was just 10 minutes after she was born. I was like, okay, what do we need to do? Who do I need to talk to? Where's the pediatrician? How do we get out of here? <laughs> and I think there was a little bit more flexibility with me being a second time mom. They just kept us for 12 hours after um, breastfeeding went fine. Um, I, of course, felt a little bit more confident in my breastfeeding journey, um, knowing some of um, the, the normal first time you know, issues that you experience. Uh, I, I knew what my body was doing a little bit more the second time. I felt more confident in you know my ability to get the baby to latch because baby knew exactly what she was doing. <laughs> she knew how to do it. I just had to be calm and patient and, and give her a chance to do it. And um, I, there was no real notable um, moments in, you know, following my birth other than just my recovery was so much easier. I, I hear that, you know, that's that's the case in subsequent births. Um, and of course, not having, you know, had any medication that that certainly made it much simpler as well. Um, and we got out of the hospital just, you know, like I said, 12 hours later and, and went home as a family of four. Mm. And that thought of giving her the time she needed to figure out what she was going to do because she knew how to do it in terms of latching, breastfeeding, it reminds me, I'm going to link on the show notes an episode by Karen Strange, which talks about the baby's birth experience. Mm -hmm. And I just love how she's, she's a, she goes around the country um, teaching resuscit baby resuscitation, newborn resuscitation mm -hmm. to nurses nursing staff. And um, but she has such a respect about the physiology and what babies are going through at that moment and how to teach this in a very kind and gentle way and as least invasive as possible. So it's it's a beautiful way of how she comes into it. Um, and that she always says, now you're on baby time. You have to go slow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything so true. slow. You know, and yeah. that will be such a great uh, connection for, for your listeners. Um, it is my profound belief that you know, how a baby enters this world and those those moments after their birth particularly really shape their, their personalities and their spirits. Um, my children are exact, um, the exact personification of their births. 
<laughs> their their personalities to a T. My son is much more clingy to me. He was separated from me, you know, in in the first hours after he was born. He's so uh, such a mama's boy, and he just wants me constantly. My daughter had just didn't need my help getting her, you know, out, and she doesn't need my help now. <laughs> she doesn't. She's so independent, and you know, my last baby, which we'll get into in a minute, um, you know, born in the water, nice and calm, and she's just the most chill, calm baby. So I think that that would be such a great connection for your listeners. Mm, I think, I, I mean, clearly it's so hard to do any um, studies and research around that, but I do hear that anecdotally over and over again. So uh, who knows, right? <laughs> but, but in any case, babies do need, they, they're moving at a different, they, their bodies are figuring things out in a whole different way. So they need that slow. For sure. Um, so then you had this wonderful birth. I did. But let me tell you by uh, start by telling you that my yeah. pregnancy, particularly in the beginning, um, was was not this amazing, beautiful journey. Um, for the my, second one or the third one? For, for my third one. Um, okay. It didn't – I call my, my home birth experience with number three, my daughter Milana, uh, you know, my dream home birth experience. But – my pregnancy really was not. <laughs> um, and not because I was unhealthy or not because there was anything particular going on with, with the baby in this pregnancy, but um, because um, my husband and I um, reached a, a really difficult um, point several months before um, this pregnancy came to be. My husband is a recovering alcoholic. And um, he was really struggling with, um, he, he had relapsed and it was really a, a, a lengthy, continuous relapse um, right around the time that I had gotten pregnant. And the day that I, um, you know, found out I was pregnant and told him I was pregnant, um, he was, uh, it, it sent him further into a relapse and he actually moved out of our house the the day that I told him that I was pregnant in, in a very deep, dark episode of alcoholism and depression. Um, so my pregnancy started off really, really difficult. I was a mom of two kids under two, um, you know, pregnant with my third baby and um, really feeling pretty alone. My mom had just moved out of state, um, didn't really have much other family close by. And uh, I, I, was, I was kind of in a really rough place. I wanted to have a third baby. We had dreamed of having a third baby. But it wasn't exactly starting how I, I I thought it might. Well, yeah, it was basically all up to you. At this point. <laughs> it was. I was. I was kind of running into a one-woman show here. Um, and and two little little ones. Little little ones. Yes, like two little ones that needed me for everything still. And you know how it is. I, I'm also a working full-time mom. Um, and then I was a working full-time, basically single mom because, you know, my husband was um, pretty far gone at the time and um, his relapse progressed. It, it got it got worse before it got better um, to the point that three months into my pregnancy, I, I had to file for divorce, um, which was a never something. I don't really even believe in divorce, to be honest with you, but there was a point where it was it was unsafe for my children and I to, um, you know, continue to. Um, be near him and to be exposed to uh, the alcoholism. And, um, and unfortunately that that's where it led me. So in, in January, this, this past year, I, I was led to, to file for divorce and, and begin that really difficult process in what is supposed to be a really beautiful time in your life. 
um, you know, this was my third pregnancy. I knew it was going to be my last. Um, and I was feeling um, immediately was just so resentful of, towards him and the situation. Um, and I spent probably the first three months of the year, most of my second trimester, usually the, the best trimester to everyone, um, really deep in resentment. And I felt like this pregnancy was being stolen from me. Um, I had been dreaming after my uh, second child was born of having this home birth experience. And I, um, of course, had had begun that process. I'll talk about that in just a minute. Um, but I was really feeling robbed. Like I, I was feeling that, you know, what I had dreamed of and the the mindset um, and the the space that headspace I really wanted to occupy for to prepare for this birth was was kind of taken from me. Right, because you have other other things that you needed to focus on. Yeah, I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was not all rosy. I'm sorry. But- <laughs> Hey, um, this is a part of a part of yeah. life, and it's a part of my story, and it's it it turned into. I mean, the, the message that I want to share in, in that is, I had these really terrible things going on, and so many of the details are, are not just unnecessary, but but really s- somewhat traumatic for me to to live through when I go back over it. However, um, there was a point. It was in April of this past year. It's about you know six six and a half months pregnant, and I remember sitting down with my doula and saying. Like, I need to take this pregnancy back. I have to get this back. Like, this is the last time I'm probably ever going to do this. This baby deserves my attention and love and the effort that I put towards my previous births. And I knew that anything that was going on in my head particularly would prevent me from having the experience that I wanted. So there was just a moment in time you know, right at the end of that second trimester where I said, this is mine, I'm taking it back. And I, I really dove into, you know, creating and planning for the home birth that I wanted. And how were you managing thing, managing everything else? Because I'm thinking that's overwhelming on so many levels, right? <laughs> well, Adriana, I run a blog called Recovering Superwoman. Um, and maybe you have a little bit of an understanding why I, I have that. I, I decided to pursue that this past year is because I was really feeling like, okay, Krista, it's all on you. You have to do everything. And while that was certainly true to an extent, there is a part of this that really requires not just birth, but life in and of itself. Things are not hundred percent in your control, no matter what, not in your job, not in your personal life, not in your relationships, not with your children, their emotions, their, their behavior. And there was a part of it where I said, I'm going to do everything, but I'm also going to let go. I'll let, I'll let God take over. I know he'll provide for me and I will accept the fact that I cannot do it all. I needed to figure out a way to get help into my life. I needed to figure out a way to manage the inconsistencies that my husband, you know, while we were going through this divorce was going to bring into this process, things that could completely throw off, you know, me, my children. And it was really by embracing that, that I felt letting go gave me control back. Mm, And that is such a powerful, of course, uh, learning, um, but also just give yourself a little bit of that grace, right? Of, of my goodness, I don't have to be perfect. I don't have to do it all. And this is, you know, 
<laughs> there's a lot going on and we are going to get through it, but you've got to have that flexibility in order to get through it. That's if right. you're stuck on a path, oof, it's just harder on yourself. That, that's right. And it's, you know, I'm sure moms everywhere would you know, do well to learn how to give themselves a little bit of grace and their children. I mean, part of, you know, what I write about regularly is, you know, conscious parenting. And a lot of that means letting kids be kids. They have big emotions. They have, you know, big feelings. And all of the things that I were going was going through were very difficult. But, you know, to a you know, one-year-old and a almost three-year-old at the time, you know, it's very difficult to quantify the things that they were feeling, the, the effects of, you know, inconsistency and lack of stability that, that they were trying to manage. And then having a new sibling on the way as well. There was just, there was a lot for them to process as well. And part of cutting myself some grace also meant, you know, pouring out grace for them. Mm. So then during that third trimester where you're like, I'm going to create this home birth that I want and I am going to accept the challenges in my life, but figure a way not to resent them, but move on from them. That's I right. am like, I'm totally like putting, is, is that what it was happening? Like, I'm just, <laughs> yeah. is what I'm hearing you say. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly right. I recognized, I mean, just like with, you know, my previous birth experiences, there are things that are out of your control. And there were things in my life that were inherently out of control at this time. And so I chose to accept it. Instead of trying to force things to be, to make them happen a certain way, I just recognized that in order to have the experience that I want to have, I have to you know, cut the reins a little bit. And I have to say, it's okay. You know, you, you can't do it all. You, you might want to, <laughs> but you know, I, I even got to a point where I was okay, not even wanting to, to try to be everyone, everything to everyone, to keep it all together. It was okay to, to break down. It was okay to not be the perfect employee because I had so many things in my life that were, you know, distracting me and taking me away. Um, and, and that's, that's simply okay. Um, and as I worked with my doula and my home birth midwives to kind of create the birth that that I wanted to have that in, involved very strategically designing what my birth space was going to look like, um, that was something I struggled with at first because I didn't even know where I was going to be living. <laughs> um, I didn't know if I would still be in my house at the time. And, um, and then when I realized, okay, listen, you haven't known what the birth space was going to look like at either of the hospitals you gave birth at either. So that's not going to be a prohibitive factor here. <laughs> Wherever it is, if you're living in this house still, or if you're in an apartment or somewhere else entirely, you know, you can still create the space that you want. And so I spent a lot of time trying to design a, a space that I felt was warm and inviting and, um, that it wasn't just the physical appearance of it. It was also, um, you know, some of the, the aesthetics and, and the sounds that I wanted to hear when, when I was in labor and, um, uh, you know, whether it was going to be light or dark or, um, you know, who was going to be in that space. I was um, just spending a lot of time trying to dream what that, that might look like to me. Mm. And I think that's a really valid exercise for anybody, no matter where they're giving birth, because you can get create a feeling in the space. Yes. Um, even if it's not yours. And that's what we often try to do, that I often try to do with my clients. So when they give birth at a hospital by doing dimmer lights or having them bring in things, or we put up fairy lights or mm -hmm. there's affirmations and you, you know, keep the sounds quiet. And so there's a lot you can do, I think, regardless of where, what the, the walls look like. That's right. That's right. 
So you had designed your birth space you, in terms of how you want it to feel. You were creating a plan with your midwives. And I'm guessing it's a different provider because these were home birth midwives? Yes, or? Yes, yeah. yes. And um, Pennsylvania is one of those states that is, um, I think there's 17 of them that just completely does not license um, midwives. Um, outside of certified nurse midwives, which are typically midwives associated with hospitals or affiliated with obstetricians. And um, so Pennsylvania does not even recognize, you know, CPMs or, you know, traditional lay midwives in any way. Um, I chose a set of traditional midwives that, um, you know, have been practicing for, for 30 years and I felt very comfortable with um, but because they weren't licensed midwives, I had, you know, they weren't able to, you know, write scripts for blood work or, you know, bring any medications to labor, even like Pitocin, if I were to hemorrhage after, um, it's, it's one of my, my biggest frustrations with, you know, failure to, to license, you know, midwives more broadly in, in the state, um, but nonetheless, like I, I was so confident in my body. I, I did establish co-care with, you know, my hospital-based midwives, um, you know, that, that I had previously worked with. But I knew that I was going to have a home birth and, and I continued to plan for that. And so I didn't find out, you know, I didn't have any ultrasounds. I didn't find out the, the gender of the baby this time around. Um, and, you know, absent some blood work early on just to, to kind of check levels and everything, I, I didn't have any testing at all done this pregnancy. I didn't do any glucose testing. I didn't do strep B testing. Um, and whether or not, you know, other people would choose that path, um, you know, aside for a moment, it was it was really nice to just trust myself this time. Like I knew my baby was okay. Um, I just had that intuition and I, I felt comfortable and confident to, to proceed you know, without having done all of that. Mm -hmm. And so you've got all these things in place and the, the due date is coming close. How were you feeling at that point? So I was feeling excited and ready. I had two prominent things on my mind as, as my due date approached, which was, um, uh, in the month of July of this past year. And the first was, um, I hadn't had my my mom at, at any of my previous births. I, I'm kind of a, a, a I didn't have a, a lot of, of people really. It was just my, myself, my husband, my doula, and and the midwives. And I really wanted to give my mom the opportunity to to be at this birth. I knew it was going to be my last. Um, I was her only daughter, and this was the only chance she'd really ever have to attend a birth. And and I wanted her to see you know, this very non-traditional way, at least for my family, of giving birth. And I wanted her to be able to experience it. However, she had moved to Charlotte, <laughs> North Carolina, and was several states away. So prominent on my mind was, you know, whether I would be able to let her know I went into labor enough time to, to make it, um, to, to see the birth. So that was one thing on my mind. And the second was um, what to do about my husband that I was divorcing, um, while he had reestablished recovery for a few months by the time July came around, I really didn't know if I wanted him in my birth space or not. Um, he was, it was the only X factor really. Um, and the most inconsistent part. And I, I really didn't know what to do with him. So I spent a lot of um, time in prayer and trying to reflect on, on those two things, how, how to get my mom to my birth <laughs> in enough time and whether or not I, I had wanted, um, you know, my husband there. Mm. 
And so how did things start? How far along were you? What happened? <laughs> so this time I went into um, labor. I think it's pretty funny, at least. My my best friend lives in Orlando, Florida, and she happened to be in town um, right after 4th of July for her baby shower. She was pregnant with her first, maybe about 32 weeks at the time. And uh, the morning of July 6th, I woke up and it was the day of her shower. Um, of course, I'm pregnant with two kids. Um, a husband that's kind of around, sometimes around, not really. And I really didn't want to get ready, <laughs> drive an hour and a half for her shower, go to the shower and come home. I was feeling like I was probably going to go into labor. But I also knew <laughs> if I didn't go to that baby shower, that my baby would never come. <laughs> you know how it is. Like you, if you don't make plans, that baby's just going to stay cooking forever. So I said, "Hey, I'm gonna. I'll get. I'll get ready. I'll take the kids. We'll go to this baby shower." And sure enough, as I'm at that shower, like I felt the early labor signs. I was, you know, my body was kind of clearing out, making some space. So run into the bathroom every ten minutes. And I think maybe some some good oxytocin was flowing from seeing all the cute little baby girl clothes that she was opening at her shower. So I think that really helped move things along for me. And um, later in the afternoon, after the shower's over, I drove home with my son and I, I said, you know what, I'm going to call my mom. I'm going to tell her, you know what, why don't you jump on a plane and get here? Because I'm pretty sure this baby's coming in the next 48 hours. Um, and she ended up coming in. She made it in a few hours later that night, the night of July 6th. Um, I was laying in my bed, very similar to how active labor started with my daughter and the surges really, um, became stronger. They were picking up speed. Um, and I was just, um, laying there for a little bit and, um, Adriana, and I know I've spoken to you about this uh, before, but it was really, um, the podcast that you released the week before my child was born. <laughs> that was like your 10, uh, 10 most useful steps for, you know, for labor. And, oh, my birth mantras. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Your birth mantras. And it, um, I, I was listening to it, uh, that, that day on the way home from that shower, you know, and I just kept hearing you say, ignore it until you can't, ignore it until you can't. And um, so I just kind of went on with my night. My mom arrived and she's like, I thought you were in labor. Like, what do you mean you're going to lay down and go to bed? <laughs> and I was like, yep, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to lay down and, and try to ignore it and sleep for a little bit. And um, uh, I just felt so confident, like having heard that over in my head over and over again. Um, and I just rested for a few hours. Um, I, uh, I, I didn't get to go back to sleep. I tried, but I wasn't able to. And I contacted uh, my doula and my midwives probably around 10, 10 o'clock that night. And I said, you know, hey, I think it would make me comfortable since, you know, you're all an hour away from me. If you just head over and, and check, I think things are about to get started. Um, and sure enough, like by the time they got there, I was definitely like well into labor land. Um, I was laboring in this um, chaise lounge, which I had no intention of laboring in. It was just a, a chair that was in my room. Um, but for whatever reason, while I was, um, you know, going through these these rushes, um, it just seemed like the most comfortable place for me to be. And um, I remember my doula, you know, placing her hands on my shoulders and saying, hey, rock star, you know, shortly after she arrived. And, um, you know, I turned around to go give her a hug. And I noticed that my midwives were there. My birth photographer was like, I didn't hear anyone enter my space. <laughs> so not only were they so quiet, but I was really in labor land. Like, I, I just heard nothing else going on. Um, uh, and so, you know, when I turned around and saw them there, I was, I was shocked. I had no idea how long they had been there. 
um, usually a pretty good sign that labor's, <laughs> you know, you're well into labor. Yeah. And the thing is, you get that narrow tunnel vision, right? It's not like you're completely out of it. It's just that focus narrows. Yeah, that's exactly right. And um, it's funny that you mentioned that because my doula said to me, um, you know, in between uh, rushes, she said, can you still hear the music? <laughs> and I said, of course I can hear the music. Like, what kind of question is that? And I I realized that she was trying to establish like how far I was just by, you know, how narrow was that focus of mine. And it's funny because probably a song or two later, like there was just, I heard no music after that, like not during the rush, <laughs> not after it. So like she literally asked me the question is I was on the precipice of really falling deep into that labor land. Um, and um, my midwives were sitting there knitting in the corner, just giving me space to labor. They came over and checked the heartbeat once or twice, um, you know, over the next hour or two. Um, I think their their records say that I climbed into the uh, the birth pool right around 1 a.m. And I remember being very conscious of the fact when I was getting to the birth pool, like, was it too early? Um, it definitely wasn't because my daughter was born like 20 minutes later. But I remember thinking, oh, is this, you know, am I getting in too early? Am I going to slow it down? Um, but I had asked my midwives to really provide me an unassisted um, labor experience. It, I wanted them to be there if I needed something or if the baby needed something, but I really just wanted to be hands off. I was, I was very confident at this point that my body definitely knew what it was doing. Um, and so I, um, I climbed into the tub. I, um, you know, spent some time with my doula, just kind of talking through some affirmations. I really told her what I, I knew what I needed. And I really was, I was having a little bit of fear because, um, in my previous labors, my, uh, my water was broken for me and I, my water hadn't broken at this point. I was pretty certain I was in transition or, or very near transition. And I, I kept thinking, Oh, is this going to be something that, you know, holds my baby in basically <laughs> like was, and I, I said, I need you to talk to me about, you know, that it's okay that my water hasn't broken. And so she, you know, um, reassured me and let me know that that's, that happens all the time. I can't remember exactly what she said to me, but it, it did the trick for me. It really works. Um, I should say that I did allow my husband to be there um, for that birth. And um, there was a, a moment probably right before I started pushing that um, he came over to me and he actually kissed me. Um, I'm sure he's heard me say the <laughs> Ina May logic of what gets the baby in gets the baby out. And he said, like, you just really looked like you needed, you know, a burst of hormones. And it caught me by surprise, given the fact that we were divorcing. <laughs> but it really did do the trick. And a moment later, my water broke. Um and I think that was about 1.20 a.m. or so. And my daughter was born at 1.28, um, completely hands off. Um, I had a, uh, I think I had a cervical lip that I was trying to push through. Um, and so it was a little bit more work uh, compared to my, my previous experience with my daughter where I really didn't have to push at all. And um, so I, I was pushing a little bit more. I was in an interesting position, um, kind of like squatting, standing up, but in the pool. I don't know why that's where my body led me to, but that's what it did. And, um, you know, she came out um, just in, in one pretty smooth push and, um, you know, right up into my arms. Um, 
I will tell you, I was certain she was a boy as I was looking at her <laughs> during my pregnancy. I, I wasn't feeling strong one way or another, but looking at her, I was like, oh, okay, this is definitely my, my second son. <laughs> and, you know, we're sitting there for the moments after and I'm just holding her. My, my son was there uh, present for for her birth. And um, it occurred to me like 10 minutes later, I didn't actually confirm that it was a boy or a girl. <laughs> I was like, okay, I'll just check. I'm sure it's, it's a boy. And it was, you know, I, I see that it was, it was another girl. And I had really, really, I think in my heart been hoping for another girl. And I didn't realize it until that moment um, when I, you know, elatedly screamed, it's a girl. <laughs> um and it was just such a beautiful, beautiful moment as I sat there and, you know, with my fairy lights hanging right next to the tub, this beautiful like red fabric next to it, um, this massive birth pool, my son right over my shoulder, leaning in and doting on his new baby sister. Um, and I was so proud of myself for creating this birth and being able to have this birth with everything that had been going on in my life. Um, it wasn't just achieving the the home birth experience and the sense of empowerment that just comes when you give birth anyway. I was so proud that I was able to put aside this tragedy of what, you know, had befallen my life and um, create this beautiful space for this girl to be born. And um, it's it's something that will stay with me for the rest of my life. Yeah, that sounds like it was a very, very even healing birth. It was. Um, I, I didn't know I needed that birth to heal me from the experience that I had been going through during the pregnancy, but that's exactly what it did. People often talk about like, you know, birth being healing for pre from previous labor or birth experiences, but it, it wasn't just that. It was really it it I felt whole. You know, despite so many things having been going on that were out of my control and, and quite difficult, it it really made me feel that I, I could do anything. Hmm. And you said your mom was there. She was. And I, I, I keep thinking about your mom. How How was she with it all? <laughs> For um, some reason, she keeps popping into my mind. Yeah, you know, um, so I think just watching her daughter, both for, for both of my parents, watching me go through this last year has been hard for them. Um, it's, it's, it's as it would for, for any parent watching their child kind of go through a difficult situation. Um, I know that she was um, incredibly empowered, you know, as a mom by my experience. I know she was also very scared. Um, I am definitely the disruptive thinker in, in my family, in my life, in my profession. It's, it's what I'm good at. Um, so I always am challenging the status quo and how things have to be done and, and trying to make it better. Um, but I, I think like many others in my life, my mom was one, like, I just, I just don't understand why you're not having the baby in the hospital. But she trusted me and she believed in me. And, you know, it was an educational experience for, for her as well. I really didn't see or feel her presence much in the room during my labor or, you know, right before the baby was born. Um, but, um, and I, when I look at some of the pictures from my birth, like I could see that she was scared on her face. She was, she was worried. And she describes the about seven seconds it took from, I really wanted my baby to come out of the water gently and like slowly. Um, and she said it was agonizing for her just not to dive in and pull the baby out of the water. <laughs> 
And I just think that's such a, you know, grandma kind of thing to say, like you see a baby underwater and your instinct is to pull them out and, you know, get them out. But it was a normal and natural thing. And um, I think it was really educational and informative for her. Mm. And I'll also link on the show notes the episode on water birth um, because there's a pressure differential, right? It isn't until the air hits the baby's face that they inhale. And it is Um, so important to know that. Like, I knew that. I knew that, you know, it was okay. She was, um, you know, she was connected to the placenta. I knew the temperature of the water was warm enough that there wouldn't be, you know, kind of a a reason for her to try to breathe underwater. Um, Because I had listened to stories like, like that and and read so many stories and, and even, you know, in, in other podcasts where I just heard and, and watched water birth and I knew what was normal. My daughter didn't cry after she was born. And I'm sure your episode, um, you know, on water birth will confirm it. it's actually quite normal for water babies to not, you know, cry out right away. Um, they have a very gentle entry into the world when they're born in the water. And, um, she wasn't crying. And I know that my mom was like worried because she wasn't crying. And I, I wasn't, I knew she was fine. She was breathing. And, you know, APGAR really assesses crying or breathing, you know, in that particular part of the score. And, and I felt comfortable because I knew that was normal. Mm. There's a, a, a saying that I've heard recently. It's um, if crying was good for the lungs, because they always say, you know, we need to get baby here to get a good cry. For It's good for their lungs. If crying was good for the lungs, then like bleeding would be good for the for the body. Wow. Right? What a good like, uh, <laughs> what a good saying. <laughs> right. Like, why do you need to push it to the extreme? Uh, and I understand that they want. But but. It, it's it's one of those things where what's best for the people around the baby is not always what's best for the baby, right? Like it makes us more comfortable when we hear a baby cry after they're born. That doesn't mean that's what makes the baby more comfortable. The baby doesn't need to breathe, doesn't need to, the stimulation in, in most, you know, scenarios. Well, and it also goes back to you have to physiology definitely has the process because it's that one that has us here for survival. And I always think about, for example, we weren't born with clamps and scissors to cut and clamp the cord. However, there's the Walker's jelly, which is the white stuff that protects the arteries in the vein around the cord that makes it so that you can even have a knot in the cord and it still protects it from being clamped. Um, once that pulse, the transfer of the pulsation of blood from the placenta to baby, once that balances out and stops, that Walker's jelly um, liquefies and self clamps. It's so cool, right? It's so, it's like amazing. things like that, right? Your baby has all these, all these mechanisms inside of them to make sure that the breathing thing works. However, we also need to put into context how the birth was beforehand. And if it was a birth that was stressful or it was a lot of medications or a lot of interventions, like how did how much did that birth derail from physiology, then some babies might need some more resuscitation because that process was harder. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's tough. I get I get that in the hospital. And like you were saying with your second birth that the nurses felt like they, you know, Yomuz gave them the trust in birth back to them because that's not unfortunately an experience they see that often Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. There was one particular a, a student at, at my second birth that said to me that she that was the first time she had seen a natural birth, and she just she didn't know what to do. Like Meaning, was, like an unmedicated an unmedicated vaginal. birth, vaginal birth. Yes. Um, now, I mean, she could have been there for two days. I don't know. Um, but you know, she she made a point to mention it, and she was just kind of astounded at the, at you know the process that nobody needed to help me do it. My in that particular instance, because it was a pure physiological birth, you know, no one needed to 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 do anything other than just let the baby be and and let me be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so so I am so glad that you had this fantastic experience of that was seems like exactly what you were looking for and what you were needing. It was. And isn't it amazing like how our babies and our bodies they do know what we need. Like I was able to still achieve this, you know, experience that I tried to dream of and really it it was. I know birth doesn't always, you know, fall that way, but you know, it, it was just really remarkable to me that there's so much of your mind that you need to let go of during actual labor and delivery. But the work that I did in preparing, you know, up to that point really allowed my body to take over with confidence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, we're going to be wrapping up, but before we do that, was there anything you wanted to make sure you got through that we haven't mentioned yet? You know, I think the the most important thing that I could possibly share was um, while I was, I was prepared. I mean, I was more prepared than, than most for, for my first birth. I re- you really don't know what you don't know until you're in the experience. And the most helpful thing that I, I could do and I had done in my subsequent births was be exposed to to normal birth stories. Um, your podcast is so wonderful to, to give people the chance to hear hundreds of, of times of, of women giving birth. And there's nothing that I could do or I think any mom could do to prepare for being a mother more than preparing for the journey to motherhood and in that labor and delivery experience. And so I just would love to, um, you know, tell your listeners that, whether you're a new mom or about to be a new mom or you just love, you know, hearing birth stories, this is really the the best thing that you could do to prepare yourself, um, you know, f- for for your, your potential birth experiences or just for life. I mean, the things that I have learned in listening to birth stories have have echoed into my pers- professional life. I mean, the advocacy that I learned to have for myself, certainly as and, you know, a lawyer for a living um, has translated into my profession. And um, you're really going to do um, yourself the, the best favor in life by continuing to expose yourself to these stories. Yay. I love that. And uh, yeah, the stories. People love this. I love the stories. They are. They are magical. Thank you so very much for sharing with us today your this such amazing and magical birth story and along with the other two in that progr- I love the idea that you had this progression into home birth. <laughs> <That's so cool. laughs> I do too. I'm glad that I was able to experience every side of the spectrum. Mighty Ones, find the in-depth show notes for this episode at birthful.com where you can learn more about me, the show, send me messages, and more. This episode was produced by me and made possible by you. 
The title song for this podcast is Vive Ace by Kevin McLeod, and the sponsorship song is Air Hockey Saloon by Chris Zabriskie. Find them both at freemusicarchive.org. Oh, and here is what Krista had for breakfast. My breakfast began at 3.30 this morning. I had a banana, some honey bunches of oats, and um, yeah, that's what I had. I'm Adriana Lozada. Please join me next week when I'll be talking to another maternity pro to inform your intuition here at the Birthful Podcast. Thanks so very much for listening. This episode is copyright 2020 by Adriana Lozada. Hey, Adriana here. I wanted to let you know that starting this week, we'll be going back to our older format of one episode per week so that we can start easing into the summer and you can have more time catching up and going through our fabulous Birthful Library. Happy listening.